And Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are they not much more... Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, Shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You may be seated. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. About 2,000 years ago, the greatest preacher that ever preached, preached a classic, and you know about that, Glenn just read part of that sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, found in your Bible, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in it, Jesus, who is more than just the greatest preacher who ever preached, but he is our everything and he is our all, said a lot of things and approached a lot of different subjects in this sermon. How about if today we would just think especially together here about verse 33 of Matthew 6. The, word, the verse that I just quoted a minute ago. So Matthew 6, 33 will be the theme for the sermon today and the text. I see two parts to this verse. The first is the precept, the first part of the verse, and a precept simply means a commandment or direction given as a rule of action or conduct. And you see the precept there, don't you? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The second part of the verse is the promise. And all these things shall be added unto you. So we're, we'll be looking at it in that way. The precept and the promise. And did you notice that we are to seek first two things? We are to seek first the kingdom of God and we are to seek first his righteousness, God's righteousness. Seek first God's reign, God's kingdom, God's reign. And that's what he does, right? He reigns. He reigns. God reigns. Jesus reigns. Now the grammar here 
would indicate, I understand, that this means a continuing and continual action. Continuing and continual. God is reigning. Jesus, the king, is reigning and will continue. And so that brings the question real quick, like, um, is this, is he reigning now? Is this a present reign or is it a future reign? Well, if we look at verses like Matthew 6.10, Jesus himself says that we are to pray, Thy kingdom come. That would indicate that the reign is future, isn't it? And, but then if we would look at Colossians 1.13, it says, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, which makes it clear that the reign is now, presently. N not future, but present. And in our hearts now. So now which is it? Well, the obvious answer is that it's both, isn't it? Jesus is reigning now. God is reigning. And he will be reigning much more yet in the future after he comes again throughout we believe the thousand year reign the millennium and into, throughout eternity so yes there's when we think of the reign of Christ he's certainly reigning now and he will certainly be reigning in a more full and complete sense yet in the future how we look forward to that time I think of Matthew 13 there, you know, the parable of the sowers, the, the parable of the soils, I'm sorry, the, the four different kinds of soils that Jesus, the great preacher, preached about that day, Matthew 13. That sermon, among other things, shows how easily other rains can crowd out and overtake our seeking first of God's kingdom. And as I think of Christ and his reign and how we are to seek first God's reign Christ's reign that's what he does he reigns I think of verses like Hebrews 1 8 that speak about uh, how God has put all things under his feet and yet that verse goes on to say we don't really see all things put under him right now so he is reigning yes he is he will reign in a more full and complete reign Yet in the future. Um, in Matthew 18.28, you might recognize that as what the beginning of what we call the Great Commission. Jesus himself says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And would you turn with me just for a few minutes to Revelation 19. Uh, and I'll just read a number of verses here in Revelation 19, breaking in at verse 11. <laughs> Wonderful verses. And this obviously speaks of the future when Jesus will come again in power and great glory. Listen to these words just once again as we think about the reign of Christ and how we are to seek God's reign. That's what he does. He reigns. Revelation 19 beginning at verse 11. Wonderful language. Picturesque language. And it's all true. 
And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thank God that he's reigning. Thank God that he will reign. And we are called to seek that kingdom first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what he does. Jesus reigns. That's what he does. Let's think now about the righteousness part. We are to seek first not only God's reign, but we are to seek first his righteousness. That's what he is, you know. Jesus is reigning and will reign. That's what he does. Jesus is righteous. That's what he is. Now, you know, as do I, that, God is, that Jesus is more than righteous. He is just, and he's eternal, and he's immutable, and self-existent, and love, and wise, and omnipotent, and good, and more. Actually, much, much more than that, but one of the attributes of God, of Jesus, is that he is righteous. And all of these attributes, the ones I just listed and the ones that I didn't list, Jesus is all of that all the time. Amazing. Wonderful. What a savior. A definition, thinking about righteousness, that I like, uh, that I picked up long ago somewhere, is righteousness is that, and it reminds me of what John Yu would often say as well, something like this, that righteousness is being right and doing right that stems from being right. Righteousness is not primarily doing right, but it's primarily being right, and on that premise and on that truth, then we do right. We are to seek God's righteousness. God is right. Jesus is right. He does right. And he does right for the right reasons. Always in the right attitude, in the right way, with right timing. Thank God for a God who is right. Thank God for a Savior and Lord like Jesus who is right. But he is more than just right. He is nothing but right. Or he does nothing, he does nothing but right things. He does nothing but for the right reasons. He is always responds in the right attitude. Always in the right way. Always with perfect and right timing. And as we think of our righteous God, it just kind of makes me wilt a little bit because I, um, both my environment and my heart are so much less than that. And we are so used to wrong here on earth. Our environment and our heart has that bent toward wrong. But he is right and we are to seek God's righteousness. 
seek ye first the kingdom of God and seek ye first his righteousness, his reign and his righteousness, what he does and what he is. And in response to all that, I just think, even so come Lord Jesus, and I pray thy kingdom come. Thinking just a little bit further now about that, that was the introduction, thinking about his righteousness and his reign, what God does and what he, God is. Let's switch to a little bit more practical part and think about Yes, practical ways in which I, practical ways in which you can seek God's kingdom first and seek God's righteousness first. I have ten thoughts, ten ideas, and that doesn't exhaust them by any means. You might be thinking of other ways in which you can do that better than the, the points that we will talk about here. Certainly so. And I give credit to Ray Pritchard for a number of these ideas. Let's think of 10 practical ways for us here in the 21st century, 2,000 years after these words were uttered, ways in which we can and should seek God's kingdom first, God's reign, and seek God's righteousness first. And let me just tell you by way of... um, giving you a hint that I'm going to dwell especially I think on the first one and the tenth one. Here's suggestions that I would give. The first one I have entitled No Bible, No Breakfast. And for that I'm going to quote rather extensively from this book by Tim LaHaye. Now I don't know if that's a name that you respect and there would be differences that we have uh, from Tim LaHaye who died just a couple years ago. Let me just say that I have appreciated his writings since I was a teenager and in the decades since I have um, looked at various of his writings and books and thank God for him. He's not God or anything. He was Tim LaHaye but I think that the following that I'm going to be reading at a little length is from his book, How to Study the Bible for Yourself. And this just might be some of the best things that he ever wrote, in my opinion. And he entitles this, A Guaranteed Formula for Learning Self-Discipline. And maybe you already are self-disciplined and don't need this guaranteed formula, but just in case, let me read on. On the basis of many years spent in helping Christians who wanted to learn discipline, I can guarantee the following three-step formula for success. There is no way you can fail if you incorporate these steps. Number one, read it when you feel like it, read when you don't. No Bible, no breakfast, all right? It would be unrealistic to suggest that every morning when you awake 15 minutes early, your brain will be 100% on and you will be eager to get into the Word. There will be mornings like that and there will be some when you awake feeling like the rapture occurred and you have been left behind, particularly if you are a late night worker. But don't give in to your lackadaisical suggestion your mind offers that if you don't feel like doing it, you won't get much out of it or it's better to wait until you have a hunger for Bible reading or you have to be in the right mood to receive a blessing. These are all lies of the devil 
or our deceitful mind. If you wake up feeling drowsy or dead, take a shower and get dressed before your quiet time. But put in your 15 minutes minimum reading time whether you feel like it or not. Some of the greatest quiet times I have had were when I prayed, Heavenly Father, I feel lousy this morning and very honestly don't even want to read your word. Forgive my carnal attitude and open my mind that I may see wonderful things in your word. Years ago, I heard a preacher say, read the Bible when you feel like it, and when you don't feel like it, read until you do. Number two, make a sacred vow with God. And I remind you, this guaranteed formula... Number one, read when you feel like it, read when you don't. Number two, make a sacred vow with God. And Mr. LaHaye goes on to say, Ordinarily, I do not challenge Christians to make vows to God because the scripture says it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. But since it is so essential to maintain a daily reading of the word, I make this one suggestion, no, no, I make this one exception because it has a long history of producing the consistency which I believe most Christians desire. As a young minister, I met a missionary whose personal life and consistently and consistency I greatly admired. When asked for the secret of your success, he replied, I never miss a daily time with God in prayer and Bible study. To my question, how did you learn to be so consistent? He replied, very simple. I made a sacred vow with God, no Bible, no breakfast. He then explained that there were a few times in his schedule when he awakened late or a child was sick or some emergency prohibited his time in the word, but when that occurred, he said, I just skip breakfast. If I am too rushed to feed my soul, I am too busy to feed my body. Through the years, I've only missed a few breakfasts because of my inability to feed my soul first. I have shared this vow with hundreds of people. Many have made and kept it for years. Very simply, the vow is no Bible, no breakfast. For those who need a scripture verse to verify everything they do, try Job 23.12. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Evidently, Job had, the, had his own vow with God that sounds a lot like no Bible, no breakfast. Number one. Read it when you feel like it. Read when you don't. Number two, make a sacred vow with God. And the third one is, yeah, you guessed it. Make no exceptions. The last part of the formula is very simple. Make no exceptions. Once you give in to the vow, once you give in, the vow is broken and it becomes easy to repeat your inconsistency. Those who diet know this fundamental rule as do joggers or self-disciplinarians in any field. I remember going three years without touching sweets, during which time I lost 40 pounds. Then I decided I could handle my sweet tooth now and took one piece of candy, then another, and gained 15 pounds back before making that vow again. Right now, I would like to issue you a challenge. Try this formula for one year. Make your vow, no Bible, no breakfast, allow for no exceptions, and you will be a much more consistent and effective Christian in 365 days. Keeping this vow will change your life. Practical possibilities for, and suggestions for seeking God's kingdom first and seeking God's righteousness first. I propose a no Bible, no breakfast as something, and I'm being uh, more understating now than Mr. LaHaye, I propose that could be a wonderful help in your life and mine.
First. First. Seek ye first. That means first. That means the, the Heavenly Father before Facebook, you know. Before the Phillies. Before your friends. Before the phone. Before anything else that begins with any of 26 letters. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. I would say that a consistent Bible schedule is foundational to seeking first God's righteousness and God's kingdom first. No Bible, no breakfast. Okay, number two now. And if it, I promise that not all ten will take as long as that one did. Number two. Another suggestion, a practical possibility for you and for me in our quest to seek God's kingdom first and to seek God's righteousness first. And that is choose a Bible, no, choose the book of the Bible to study for a month. Um, well, April has already started. How about May? Or maybe the rest of April. Choose a book of the Bible to study. Now, there are other plans that work very well, and we've often been encouraged to read the Bible through in a year, and you have probably done that. I have done that uh, to good profit, and I just say that for myself, I don't know about you, but for myself, it just seems better for me if I take a portion of Scripture and read that often. And read that for my personal devotions for a week or a month. For me, that has done good things for me. It might be different for you. But here's the suggestion. Anyway, choose a book of the Bible and study it for a month or a week. You, you can adapt this however you'd like. Read it fast some morning. Read it slow the next morning. Read just a part of it some morning. Read it often. Read it all in one sitting. Meditate on just a verse or a section. The God's word and every portion of God's word can profitably stand up to that. You know that there's two types of literature in the Bible. One of them is the teaching part and the other is the stories. And most, and probably you can, you know within yourself which you like better, which seems to resonate better with you. You might know that I like the stories. And it's easy for me to understand the stories and gather lessons from the stories. That means that I spend some time in the book of Nehemiah and lots of time in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And that's all right and good. But I think that the Lord, after I had been in Joshua for quite a while, it seemed like the Lord was saying, Norman, it's about time that you get into Ephesians. So... If you are a stories person, maybe you should think about the teaching part, the Ephesians and the Philippians and the Colossians. If on the other hand, you often and revel in the New Testament and the teaching portions, maybe, maybe the Lord would want you to head back to Genesis and just study from there for a while. Wonderful things that one can pick up if he goes outside of his box just a little bit. Choose a book of the Bible or a portion to study for a month, for a week, for a portion of time. The same, what I just said about that 
could also be said about the two testaments. If you are a New Testament man, maybe it's about time for you to head to the Old Testament. If you are an Old Testament lady, maybe it's time for you to move to the New for a little while. Choose a book of the Bible to study for a portion of time. Maybe after you do that for a while, for a month or two or ten, maybe in 2020 you'll decide to study one book of the Bible for a year. Who knows? That's number two. Number one, no Bible, no breakfast. Number two, choose a book or a portion of study, a portion of the Bible to study for a month or for a certain portion. Number three, use a study Bible, a study Bible, or commentaries or Bible helps. Now I want to be real careful with that. You may have heard teaching where you should just stick to the Bible and you don't need those kind of things. I personally would differ just a bit with that. I have learned a lot and been greatly uh, helped by reading and studying commentaries and, and other Bible helps. I don't think that we should be so arrogant. Careful, Norman. I don't think that we should be so arrogant as to say that we can't be helped by other people's observations and other people's study and other people's experience. That's what you're doing when you listen to sermons and even in Sunday school class, isn't it? And I think I understand that one needs to be careful about that and there are plenty of sources out there that, are, uh, that, that can possibly lead us astray. We want to be careful by the Spirit of God. Um, one series of commentaries that I can highly recommend and that I don't think you're going to have to worry at all about, uh, about finding a bunch of bad stuff is this one um, by a man named Aaron, Glick, uh, Aaron Lapp. I'm sorry. He has written a number of commentaries like you know and he's still working on that. And I could say just a little bit more about that. He has been known to give volumes to his friends. And let me just suggest that if you would become his friend, you could profit in two ways. You could profit by uh, the wisdom and just the friendship, and who knows about number two. Now, the fourth one that I'm thinking about, share what God is doing. So we talked, we had three uh, uh, points, especially about God's word and reading it, understanding it. N number one, no Bible, no breakfast. Choose a book of the Bible or a section to study for a period of time. Number three, use study helps. Number four, share what God is doing with others. So the first three were all uh, personal and individual and turned inward. Now let's turn outward. Share what God is doing with others. It could be by purposefully um, gaining a mentor or becoming a mentor to someone. It could be by joining a Bible study or another Bible study or contributing more in Bible study or contributing more in Sunday school class and saying what this, uh, being willing to share what God is sharing with you. It could be as something as simple as uh, steering a converse, your conversations and your fellowships after church uh, along kingdom lines or at the, at the dinner table today or 
with your family during the week of steering conversation to things of God. Share what God is doing. Number five, here's one that, that I don't like that awfully well, but I think it's one that I should, and that's keep a journal. Not a diary now, but a journal. And this is for men, not just ladies. Ladies like to do that more than the typical man, I believe. But I think us men should be learning from you ladies in that. Not just a diary, but a journal. Not just saying about uh, what you did that day and how the weather was, but writing about what God is doing in your life. And a journal. Your feelings. A journal. There was a man named um, Jim Elliott who did that for years. After his death, his widow, I think, um, published the, that journal type thing. That's number five. Keep a journal. Number six, memorize scripture. And I would say teenagers especially. I remember when I was a teenager, I was immensely blessed by being on a schedule for a while. And that... Memorizing scripture just does a lot. Um, that of hiding God's word in one's heart, tremendous. From various angles, let me just say for now that after I was ordained, it became especially helpful to me. Now, you teenagers and youth, um, not all of you are going to be ordained, but if the Lord tarries and you live, some of you men are going to be preachers someday, and that's just one good reason to... Memorize God's word. Now I know that not all of you teenagers and youth ladies are, are going to be preacher's wives someday, but if the Lord tarries and you live, some of you are going to be. And that's just one reason for hiding God's word in your heart and memorizing scripture. We sometimes say that we can't do it as well when we get older. Might be right. But your young years especially, I would encourage you in that. Now, I know that you can memorize scripture. You can. One of the reasons that I say that so emphatically is because I have a daughter named Kathy, and she can memorize scripture. If Kathy can memorize scripture, then you can too. Right, Kitty? She's nodding her head. And if you want to ask her more about that after church, ask Kathy about what she's memorized and... Who it was that helped her with that? I think she'd be glad to tell you. It wasn't me. It was her sisters, and especially one, I believe. Memorize scripture. Do you need suggestions? Um, well, how about Psalm 1? How about... Now, if you really need a challenge, how about the Sermon on the Mount? It's only three chapters. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Or it could be the book of Ephesians. Or many others. Number seven. Listen to the Bible being read. In our quest to study, uh, to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, there's something good that can be said about hearing the Bible read. Not just reading the Bible, but hearing it with your ears. And that's something that I had known for a while, or had come across that idea. Never did any of that, or very little of that, but I knew that my father-in-law did, and he was kind of enthused about 
um, putting a cassette tape into a player when he was driving or maybe at work in his garage and listening to the Bible being read. Well, one day time we were bringing them home from Florida and so you know what happened. He had a captive audience and he put those cassettes into his player and we listened to the Bible on the way home for a good while. And he was right. There was just something about hearing the Bible that just made the sensory uh, experience a little different. And I was so blessed by that. Now, you know that things are a lot easier and a lot better these days than cassette tapes. There's things called apps, and they're easy to download. And you can do that. You can listen to that on the job, whether you're a mom with children at home. Listen to the Bible being read. Number seven. Number eight. Do something real for God. Something real. Something hard. Are you ready? Are you up to the challenge? Noah was, you know. If you don't think that building for 120 years and putting up with ridicule of your peers is something real for God, I think it was. Abraham did that. See, he offered his son Isaac. Long before that, he had left all the comforts of home and had struck out like a vagabond. Moses did that, remember? How about the children of Israel going around Jericho 13 times? How about Rahab inside those walls? How about the Shunammite woman or Peter or Philip? And the list could go on and on and on. Biblical characters, examples for us who did something hard for God, who are willing to step outside their comfort zone and do it. And as you're thinking about something hard now, doing something real for God in your quest to seek God's kingdom first and to seek God's righteousness first. If it's not scary to think about, it's probably not worth it. If it's not scary to think about, it probably doesn't qualify. To do something real for God, it could be, um, oh, CJ did it this morning, didn't you, CJ? It could be a topic at church. It could be going to into VS. It could be going into VS in an area where you don't want to go or think you have expertise in. And let me just mention about my daughter Stephanie. I felt called to go to Hillcrest Home a number of years ago to clean, to be a... What's the position called? Basically, it's cleaning, the housekeeping. She didn't like that idea. Um, she could think of other places she would have rather gone and things she'd rather done, but it seemed like God was calling her to go to Hillcrest and clean. So to her credit, that's what she did. It could be mate doing something hard like offering an apology to one of your friends that needs it. It could be teaching Bible school. Do something real for God. Number nine. Pray for missionary eyes. Did you think about it? We didn't talk about prayer yet at all. This list of suggestions and possibilities is far from complete, but here's a prayer situation. And I read from Ray Pritchard here. Every day you meet people who need the help only you can give. 
Some of them need a word of encouragement, and you are the only one who can give them that word. Some of them are staggering beneath a heavy load, and you are the only one who can lift that burden from their shoulders. Some of them are about to quit, and you are the only one who can keep them in the race. Some of them have been hit with an incredible string of trials, and you are the only one who can help them keep going. Pray that God will give you missionary eyes to see the real needs of the people you meet. Pray that God will bring at least one person across your path who needs the help only you can give. That's a prayer God will answer, for there are folks all around you who are just barely making it. You see them where you work, and you live next door to them. Your children go to school with their children. They are out there waiting for someone to give them help. Now, you might not be material to be on the Christian Aid Ministries um, team, um, phone answering team member, one of them, but you can pray for missionary eyes, and so can I. All right, I gave you the nine easy ones now. I'm ready for the, the hard one, and that is become a better forgiver. And again, I read from Ray Pritchard, Mark Twain once remarked that forgiveness is the fragrance the violet yields to the heel that has crushed it. Easy to say, hard to do. Make up your mind that you won't be a grievance collector. Love doesn't keep score of the sins of others, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Love has a short memory and sealed lips. We need to hear this word because others will indeed fail us a multitude of times. Sometimes the people we love the most will hurt us deeply. Love expects others to fail, expects to be hurt, and expects to be used unfairly. It goes on loving anyway. There is nothing sadder than a bitter Christian. Don't fall into that trip, be a, into that trap. Be a quick forgiver. Over the years... I have, I enjoy reading uh, significant things and quotes and to remember them I have a file in my computer where so I would, if I read it on, on the computer I can just cut and paste it or, and put it into my file and I have quite a long list anymore of quotes that I've gathered over the years and I noticed that that I have quite a number of them on forgiveness. And I think I know why. Because I need to become a better forgiver. Um, just in case it's of help to you, let me read some of those quotes that I've gathered over the years. Um, Vance Havner has said, and I adapt that just a little bit and add the word Mennonite, where it was something else. He said that there is nobody in pulpit or pew who needs a revival worse than a bitter-spirited Mennonite with his dispensations right and his disposition wrong. He also said, we haven't gained much by being Mennonite if we can't be gentlemen at the same time. John Phillips has said, there's nothing more unchristlike than a critical spirit. You know Marianne Kaufman? whose husband was murdered in North Carolina back in 2013. A year later, she was interviewed uh, by somebody in the media, and this is what she said, and it showed up in the newspapers, I think on TV. 
when you've actually experienced God's forgiveness in your own life for the things you've done wrong, when it comes down to forgiving other people, how can you hold things against them when you have sinned so much and been forgiven so much? How can I not forgive them? I don't know their past. They've probably been through hard things themselves. And I know they did very wrong, but so did I. And God forgave me, and I can't hold it against them. End of quote. Another lady wrote, Forgiveness is the economy of the heart. Forgiveness saves the expense of anger, the cost of hatred, the waste of spirits. Jonathan God, a preacher up in Mifflin County, said in my hearing one time, We gave up our right to unforgiveness when we accepted God's forgiveness. Some more quotes from Ray Pritchard that I gathered over the years. Do not complain about circumstances. That changes nothing. Do not resent difficult people. That changes nothing. Do not moan about hard challenges. That changes nothing. Ask the Lord, what do you want me to learn from this? That changes you or me. He also said, we will never be more like Christ. We will never be more like Jesus than when we pray for those who have hurt us deeply. And he said, uh, talking about Jonathan, uh, about Genesis 45.8, you know that was Joseph. So it was not you who brought me here, but God, Joseph said to his brothers that day. And Mr. Pritchard says, Joseph prospered in Egypt because he saw God's fingerprints everywhere, even in the worst that man could do to him. It's a great advance to see God at work in your trials because then bitterness gives way to blessing and groaning turns to gratitude. One more on this subject of forgiveness and this one is by Alan Simpson. He's a former senator, I think from Colorado maybe, and he said this a couple months ago, December 5th, 2018 at George W. Walker's funeral or memorial service. Mr. Simpson was, apparently was a friend of the former president and he spoke there and he said this. Um, the first part, um, you can see, you can take it or leave it, but especially think about the second sentence. The first sentence he said is that humor is the universal solvent against the abrasive elements of life. Okay? Humor is the universal solvent against the abrasive elements of life. And then he went on to say that hatred corrodes the container it's carried in. Hatred, I thought that was quite an observation and quite a truth for what I would call a secular man to say in public. Hatred corrodes the container it's carried on. So... I only have one problem that I'm thinking about right now, and that's that the time is almost up, and I'm only, I only covered the precept part. So, I think that we will work on the promise part maybe at some other time. Just to review here, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Ten practical possibilities. Number one, no Bible, no breakfast. Number two, choose a book of the Bible to study. Number three, use Bible helps. Number four, share what God is doing. Number five, keep a journal. 
Six, memorize scripture. Seven, listen to the Bible being read. Eight, do something real for God. Nine, pray for missionary eyes. Number ten, become a better forgiver. Now you know that these are not the Ten Commandments. These are ten suggestions or ten practical possibilities. If any of these could be of any help to you in your Christian life, what a blessing that could be. In our quest as a church and as a body and as families and individuals to truly seek God first and his righteousness. In closing, you know about Jim Elliott. So, and you know perhaps that he said as a young man, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And you might also know that he was martyred on January 8th, 1956. And later, they found his diary or journal at the murder scene or close by. And his last entry into that document had been this. And I will just read this. And then we'll kneel together in prayer. As I read this, think about his commitment to seek God first, his kingdom, and his righteousness. Last words of Jim Elliot. I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious, to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart to gaze and glory and give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him, if only I may love him, please him. Perhaps in mercy he shall give me a host of children, and I think he means converts, that, that I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies whose finger ends set them to burning. But if not, if only I may see, touch his garments, and smile into his eyes, ah, then not stars nor children shall matter, only himself." Oh, Jesus, master and center and end of all, how long before that glory is yours which has so long awaited you? Now there is no thought of you among men. Then there shall be thought of nothing else. Now other men are praised. Then none shall care for any other's merits. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven. Take your crown, subdue your kingdom, and thrall your creatures. Will you kneel with me in prayer?